Notebook by Ron's Kafka. So we're doing the Zoom service at five. I mean, maybe somebody gets there, just starts listening to the podcast at five o two, and then they're like, "Oh, hey, I can go to Zoom and see people's faces." So they'll go to the newsletter, click on the link, and join the Zoom meet. Oh yeah, that's what you do right now. So if you get the newsletter, go there. Yeah, not uh, meeting service. It's going to be like yeah, music and. Oh, it's just going to yeah. be a lot of... I mean, really, I'm very intrigued by the scavenger hunt, too. They're going to have a scavenger hunt. But yeah, there'll be a lot of good interaction with people. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to be there. I'm there right now. Yeah, and I'm not... I'm in Georgia right now. Not oh, really, but yeah, I what will are you, be, yeah. yeah, you're in Georgia. You're going down to take in your parents down to Florida. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll be in Georgia. We'll be just driving, you know. Yeah. On, yeah. Down in sunny Georgia. That'll be great. So wish me luck, everyone. Or some, Yeah, we're super grateful if you do it, and thanks everyone who, uh, you know, makes the mercy happen. Absolutely. It's, uh, we need it. We need it, and we're, we're grateful. Yes, very. What else do we have to announce? Oh, hey, you know, like, um, I'm going to still be working when I'm in Florida, but I did get someone to preach for me on the 7th, and... Uh, I think it's going to be uh, a really good sermon. No, this is really exciting. I'm really looking forward to this um, because uh, the rector of uh, Trinity Church, Trinity Church Wall Street. That's right, Winnie Varghese. Um, and yeah, she's, I think we're lucky to get her. It just was like happenstance. I, asked someone and they were friends with Winnie and they said ask Winnie and I asked Winnie and she said yes surprisingly so I think it yeah I'm looking forward to it yeah uh, I am as well it's been a long time since we had a guest preacher like that and uh, I guess our first uh, one maybe our first COVID on the podcast guest preacher yeah yeah I think so yeah so um, what else we got going on here I mean, you know, we're in Lent. That yes. means Easter's coming. Mm-hmm. And I would think people would want to kind of like look forward to the fact that we are planning an in-service Easter celebration. Yeah, an in-person. I mean, in-person it's yeah. outdoor, in-person, COVID-safe. Uh, yep, uh, resurrection. COVID-safe, resurrection, socially distanced Jesus. Um yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I can think of any other announcements, right? Oh, Stations of the Cross, of course. That's something to look forward to. That's coming I mean. up, yep. That's going to be great. That's coming out. Uh, what we do, we ask, uh, like we ever do, every year we ask 14 artists to interpret each interpret a Station of the Cross, like we did last year. 
Um, we've asked 14 different writers to reflect on each station of the cross, uh, record it, send it into us, and then we uh, put it all together for the stations of the cross service. And uh, last year was just fantastic. It's uh, by far the um, most downloaded uh, episode of podcast that we've ever put out there. So I'm looking forward to another good one this year. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have anything else, Russell? No, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, but uh, this will be and is the House of Mercy. And welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, though we might be tired of gathering, if you can even quite call it that, virtually, help us hear something that frees us to be more fully alive or see something out our window or on the street where we're walking or on the path by the river, something that gives us life. Heighten our attentiveness, even in the midst of deprivation, as we observe the season of Lent. As we pause from at least some other things to consider you to be the church, to dwell in the mercy, be with us. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you. Thoughts and miles.
Please join me in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer or petition with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. Creator of life, help us not to lose our life, all these passing moments where we are actually alive to whatever deathy thing might be driving us. Addiction or money or striving to achieve something or gain something that in the face of death looks pretty paltry or petty or meaningless. If you could help us understand this saying, for whoever would save their life will lose it, we would be grateful. Free us to life in the face of death as we make our way through Lent. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we would rather not suffer and die. We would very much like it if our children and parents and friends, if those we love wouldn't have to suffer and die. And in our more expansive moments, we long for the end of suffering for every living thing. But we know most of us will suffer and all of us will die. Help us look this in the face and love and live and act in ways that will make the world at least a little better and alleviate what suffering we can and not center ourselves such a shaky construction Help us know what it means to follow you. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Merciful Creator, we pray for the suffering to be alleviated, for Sonia's dad, for whatever peace you can bring, whatever love you can wrap him in to ease the difficulty. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For Marian Nolene and her family, we pray. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all of us who need physical, psychological, and emotional relief, we pray. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As we pause for silence, help us to be attentive to you, to those in need, to the world around us. Lead us to mercy. Amen. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. 
But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, also go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Come on. Come on. I mean, after all we've been through, after all we've been through, I mean, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, yeah, we all know it's in the Old Testament. It's in Hammurabi's code. It's the same thing. It's probably the oldest code of justice there is. It's the one you come up with when you're a kid. Your brother runs over your Star Wars X-Wing fighter with his big wheel and smashes it beyond repair. So you stomp on his Rubik's Cube, wearing your snow boots, with no regard for the fact that he had completed five sides, breaking apart all 54 colored plastic pieces and sending them skittering across the kitchen floor. Your brother, while he might stand there looking astonished at Justice's speed and might, he can't say anything. He understands it. Fair is fair. This is a form of justice that leads everybody super pissed off and kind of sad. And whether they admit it or not, feeling a little guilty. This is the system that is used to justify capital punishment. You committed a horrible crime, you killed somebody. The state will commit a horrible crime and kill you. And you will tell the television reporters when they ask that you know this won't bring back the Star Wars X-Wing fighter, but at least now there's closure and you can begin to heal. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but Jesus goes on and amends the justice system that balances violence with violence. Did I say to you, do not resist an evildoer? I do say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloaks as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Do not resist an evildoer? What? Someone hurts you, do not defend yourself, remain in a position so that they might hurt you again? Somebody wants to sue you and take your coat and give them your cloak as well? So what this means is that all your clothes, and that's everything you have, 
If they want to see you and take something from you, you should give them everything so you are naked, completely exposed. If someone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. So what you got here, somebody's beat you up, strips you naked, and now is dragging you down the road, and you are like, come on, let's go a little bit further. And at the end of that, there's a beggar asking you for something. What do you have left? Jesus amends the Old Testament code. Jesus is replacing the code that leaves both parties hurt with one that leaves, does you hurt? I mean, what? I mean, what? What kind of code, set of rules, principles, philosophy is this? So this is what? This is ethics, morals? I mean, what's the difference between morals and ethics anyway? I always wonder, but I'm hesitate to ask that question because I probably should know this. I probably should have learned that freshman year intro to philosophy. Probably earlier than that in high school in my advanced smart kids class. Actually, I was probably taught the difference in grade school at my young evangelical tyrants club. But as I look into it, it seems that I'm not the only one a little unclear about the difference between morals and ethics. And I looked into it, of course, and by that I mean that I Googled it. I Googled what is the difference between morals and ethics. And, you know, I'm not just a random Googler that accepts any answers that I find on the Internet. I didn't just read the first random thing that comes up, even though in a forum on everyanswer.com, him 65 seemed to understand my dilemma in their response to Scorpio Awesome, writing, um, yeah, that is a hard one. Um, I think nothing. They're probably like the same thing, I'm pretty sure. Hope that helps. No, I went to more substantial sites. And an article on the website for the Bellingham Exotic Pet Rescue said, morals define a person's character. Ethics are standards or codes of behavior expected by the group to which an individual belongs, national, social, religious, professional, company, ethics. A person's moral code is unchanging, while ethics are dependent on the context. org says that the two nouns are closely related and are often interchangeable. The main difference is that morals are more abstract, subjective, and can change depending on the context, while ethics are rooted in unchanging principles of fairness. Morals embody principles used to decide what behaviors are right and good, and proper ethics are about putting principles into action. Ethics are about self-restraint, about what we should not do, not doing what you have the power to do, not doing what you have the right to do, not doing what you want to do. More simply put, ethics are the rules for deciding correct conduct. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy states that the word ethics is commonly used interchangeably with morality. Well, big ups to Lovinim 65, the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy agrees with you. Of course, ethics is a branch of 
philosophical study, and the history of ethics in philosophy is long, deep, and wide. Ethics is the study of the systematizing of and of and defining of concepts of right and wrong based on particular determinants. It begins with the Greeks, because I'm sure before the Greeks, people never thought about right and wrong and just did things with a complete lack of self-awareness. Actually, that sounds kind of relaxing. Socrates says the right and wrong are determined by virtue. Aristotle says that right and wrong are determined by what is most true to oneself. Hedonists say right and wrong are determined by what brings you the most pleasure. It goes on and on through every philosophical epoch. Of course, post-structuralists say there's no self available to determine right and wrong. So what kind of ethics do we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, in this text today? As Debbie once observed, if you're not poor in spirit at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you certainly will be at the end. The Sermon on the Mount is the largest section of Jesus' teaching in any gospel. Three chapters worth. Mark's gospel mostly gives us the summary statement, he taught and healed many, but Matthew spells it all out. Jesus is riffing on the laws of Moses and the Levitical laws. He's taking all the biggest hits and reinterpreting them. Jesus is like a free jazz rabbi sometimes seemingly losing the melody, only to come back around and resurrect it in a way you could never have imagined, bending it, blending it, folding it in on itself, and then laying it out plain. The three Sermon on the Mount chapters are profound, compelling, frightening, encouraging, threatening, simply ethically and theologically gorgeous, and have the potential to be quite disheartening. The list of potential failings is extensive, and the punishments for those failings are not only severe but grotesque. Clearly the red-letter Christians have misunderstood the intent of using that color in printing the words of the Sermon on the Mount. I realize this time through that it is the blood in the words spilled on the page. It is my righteousness hemorrhaging. I bleed from the eyes, the hands, and the feet, and certainly my tongue has caused me to sin. My mind and my heart are guilty too. The fires crackle all around me. I stand naked and in need. Of course, it is possible that I don't need to be so melodramatic. It is possible that Jesus might be exaggerating to make a point. I think the gospel writers use this technique quite often to agonize over my own personal ability or inability to measure up, or my dread for the consequences of my failings, really is uh, a very self-absorbed. That kind of gospel mirror-gazing nearly always results in missing the point. Perhaps it's even employed subconsciously to avoid what is there. Verses 43 through 47 contain the most radical redefinition of the law in the New Testament. The idea of loving your enemies and praying for them, meditating on those who seek to do you harm, and wanting for them the life of love and happiness that you want for your children and your tribe, is enough teaching for a lifetime. And if the consequences for failure that Jesus tells about are indeed hyperbole, 
then we will just devote ourselves to attempting to live this way. Not out of the fear of consequences, but out of a desire to live in a world that will result from this practice. This week's reading ends with Jesus' call to perfection. In a cursory reading of the gospel, or the gospel mirror-gazing reading, this call to perfection can seem like one more unattainable demand, one more point of failure. But if we read it not with blood in our eyes, but trust in our hearts, maybe we can see something else. Is it possible that everything that comes before verse 48 is Jesus' definition of perfection? A radical perfection? A relational perfection? When Jesus calls us to live out this heightened law, where we don't return violence with violence, we don't objectify women, we are moved to be reconciled with our neighbor and be willing to give up all that we have. Is it possible that he is articulating the length Jesus will go to be in relationship with us? The length God will go to be in relationship with us? We're the ones that commit violence against him. He turns the other cheek. We're the ones that don't want the cloak. We are willing to take everything he has and leave him standing there naked. We are the enemies that seek to do him harm, that persecuted him. Jesus is praying for us. This is God's table, and all are welcome. On the night he suffered, Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it and gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he gave the cup for all to drink, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember me. Pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand, have faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay. Where doubts arise and fears dismay Though some may dwell where these abound My prayer, my aim is higher ground Lord, lift me up and let me stand My faith on heaven's table land A higher plane than I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright But still I pray till heaven I found Lord, lead me on to higher ground Lord, lift me up and let me stand I faith on heaven's table land A higher plane than I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground Lord, lift me up and let me stand 
now though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, may the God of love comfort you. May goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your week. Go in peace. Amen.